Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 19 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a review of FCPA enforcement in 2017. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year to everybody, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. In today's episode, I'm going to review FCPA enforcement in 2017. In general, and looking at this from sort of a macro level to start, FCPA enforcement in 2017 was down from the record year of 2016. There are, in my mind, two significant explanations for this result. First, there was a transition to a new administration, and that always takes some time. And second, as part of that sort of transition process, there have been continuing delays in filling a key position, one of which is the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division. The absence of a political leader in that position, I think, tends to slow down the resolution of sort of bigger cases uh, that may be handled by the uh, Criminal Division and by the FCPA unit. And despite the fears that the new president would end aggressive uh, FCPA enforcement, the Justice Department's work really has continued with little change in priorities. Uh, For the year, and let's look at some of the numbers, the Justice Department brought a total of six enforcement actions against six companies, and one of which, and then they also brought one non-prosecution agreement, uh, totaling approximately $845 million in fines and penalties against corporate uh, defendants. Uh, They also brought, uh, and I think this is more the story of the year, 13 individual criminal guilty pleas or indictments for FCPA violations. Now, this number doesn't take into account uh, the prosecutions related to uh, corruption at the United Nations. Um, The SEC brought enforcement actions against six companies, totaling approximately $262 million in penalties, and three individuals, one of whom settled, two are still uh, pending trial. But all in all, the government took in approximately $1.1 billion in fines and penalties for FCPA violations, which is not too shabby a year, but again, in comparison to 2016, uh, it uh, definitely was a downturn. Let's now turn to some significant events. Before discussing individual cases or trends, the most significant event for the year was the adoption of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. This new policy has, in my estimation, killed the last gasp of FCPA reform efforts. The policy is well thought out, gives companies a path to earn a declination for any criminal FCPA prosecution. No longer will arguments for an unwise or unproven compliance defense or other technical and wordy quote-unquote reforms and so-called quote-unquote ideas uh, that turn out to be ill-advised or unworkable in practice carry any weight uh, in the political discourse, in my mind. The FCPA enforcement policy is well-crafted, well-thought-out, and frankly is going to be set in stone, barring some major implementation issues, which I do not foresee at all. In practice, the new policy offers companies a declination with disgorgement of ill-gotten revenues and profits if they voluntarily disclose uh, the conduct to the Justice Department, fully cooperate in the ensuing investigation, 
and remediate in a timely and appropriate way. If a company chooses not to disclose, or if you fall under an aggravating circumstance, you will pay a price, but you can still earn a significant discount of 50% from the lower end of the U.S. sentencing guideline range, and then avoid a corporate monitor. The new FCPA corporate enforcement policy also reflects DOJ's commitment to individual prosecutions uh, as required by the Yates Memorandum. And in that, there is a priority now for the prosecution of culpable individuals. Companies that fully cooperate are required to identify and provide evidence relating to each culpable individual, and we've already seen uh, the impact of it this year with 13 criminal cases being brought against individuals, a total of 13 this year. The Yates Memorandum has definitely kicked in, and the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy will act as a force multiplier. Any company seeking a declination or a 50% discount uh, will have to cough up evidence targeting individuals in uh, the company uh, that may be involved in illegal bribery schemes. Let me take a moment now to talk about two other headlines, not as significant as those two that I just mentioned, individual prosecutions and FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, The first is uh, the Justice Department is quickly galvanizing an aggressive expectation uh, of companies uh, with regard to disciplining FCPA wrongdoers and those who are responsible for supervising or otherwise uh, monitoring corporate employees. A company seeking benefits under the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy better have used a meat cleaver when it comes to disciplining executives and employees involved in FCPA bribery violations. This remediation requirement of meeting out aggressive discipline uh, extends not just to firing and disciplining those directly involved, but the Justice Department has made it clear that it expects supervisors uh, should be disciplined when they should have known about misconduct or prevented such misconduct. Companies that protect executives from this standard and impose no penalties on these executives or employees or managers are going to be subject to second-guessing by the Justice Department, and that in turn can lead to a potential loss in millions for a reduction under the new uh, enforcement policy. FCPA enforcement in 2017 also continues and also reflected the growing and more uh, effective Um, global enforcement network. Most FCPA enforcement actions now involve multi-jurisdiction collaboration and coordination with penalty offsets among the participating countries. This is a positive development and it reflects the fairness of reducing the risk of multiple punishments for the same conduct. And I expect this trend to continue into the new year 2018 since Justice Department officials, Rod Rosenstein included, have sought to address the overlapping enforcement issues involved in a coordinated uh, global anti-corruption enforcement uh, network. So now let's turn, if we can, to some specific uh, enforcement actions, and I'm going to review uh, them relatively quickly but give you some of the headlines from them. As to specific enforcement actions, we saw in 2017 four major actions. One was Rolls-Royce, two was Telia, Uh, Three was Kepler Offshore, which just occurred in December, close to the end of the year, and SBM Offshore. First in Rolls-Royce, let's talk about that. In early 2017, 
Uh, there was an $800 million global settlement announced consisting of uh, Rolls-Royce paying 497 pounds sterling to the UK Serious Fraud Office, 169 million to the US, and 25 million to Brazil. The US and the UK uh, entered into deferred prosecution agreements covering systemic bribery that lasted 13 years involving 22 countries uh, and involved an extensive network of corrupt third-party intermediaries. Uh, the Serious Fraud Office is now prosecuting five individuals criminally uh, out of this matter, and the U.S. secured guilty pleas from five individuals, or and one individual was indicted and is a fugitive uh, as we're recording this. The Telia case, which was also a, uh, a major case, involved a U.S., Dutch, and Sweden settlement uh, totaling $965 million, subject to offsets from the U.S. side, to Dutch and Swedish prosecutors. Uh, the Swedish government criminally charged the former CEO and two senior executives. Again, this was at the C-suite level. And bribes were paid through the acquisition of shell companies owned by the Uzbekistan president's daughter. Uh, and this was much akin to, and frankly was nip, uh, part of, uh, the same type of investigation that was done in the Vimplecom case in 2016, where there was a lack of due diligence, there was a lack of knowing who the beneficial owners were, and even up to the corporate board being involved. Surprisingly, though, in the Telia case, there was no uh, corporate monitor was imposed given the extensive remediation. And in that case, the remediation involved a whole new board, a whole new set of senior executives. Uh, and it was pretty extensive, and maybe that was the reason they were able to convince uh, the Justice Department not to impose a monitor like that one was imposed in the Vimplecom case. In the F, uh, SBM offshore case, there was a $238 million penalty in a deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice. Uh, in 2014, the, the Justice Department deferred to the Swedish government, and SBM paid $240 million. The reason for that was that the Justice Department thought at that time that it lacked jurisdiction uh, to prosecute SBM offshore for its uh, illegal activities in the United States. But two years later, the Justice Department reopened the case based on the Unioil investigation and information they learned and in that investigation, they discovered that there was a U.S. executive who participated in the bribery scheme and made payments from uh, his accounts in California. Uh, the bribery in the SBM of offshore uh, case was, again, orchestrated at the CEO level. In fact, the, uh, the, fa the uh, specific evidence cited was the fact that the CEO's uh, one after another, uh, maintained a spreadsheet uh, that kept track of all the bids, uh, all the projects, and all the bids that were uh, being maintained. Uh, nobody knew about this other than the administrative assistant and the CEO. Um, third parties were used here to deliver uh, every conceivable benefit to pay for projects or to get inside information to get other benefits. And in fact, uh, as you probably already know, former, uh, the former CEO and U.S.-based sales executive uh, both pled guilty to criminal FCPA charges. But a former CEO pleading guilty was a big deal. Another big case which occurred towards the end of the year was Ke Keppel Offshore and Marine. 
which paid $422 million in an FCPA settlement, $106 million to the U.S., $211 million to Brazil, and $106 million to Singapore for bribery of Brazil officials at uh, Petrobras, but also included a political party in Brazil, that being the Workers' Party. Again, third parties, agents, and consultants were used uh, to funnel illegal bribes. Um, interestingly, uh, some of the payments were made from U.S. bank accounts, which highlights to me that it's easy to disguise true ownership of U.S. bank accounts, uh, and these were used to finance bribery payments, and that obviously gave the Justice Department plenty of uh, jurisdiction to pursue the case. Um, and the payments were made by the financial controller at the specific direction in emails uh, from senior executives. And in, interestingly, in a, in a twist here, an in-house attorney had pleaded guilty to criminal FCPA conspiracy and cooperated with the Justice Department investigation. Uh, now, how that attorney was able to balance attorney-client privilege issues and illegal activity issues would be an interesting discussion to learn about. Going through a few other cases, uh, there was the Halliburton case, uh, which was an SEC prosecution for $29.2 million in a civil penalty. Uh, an executive there who I represented paid $75,000 uh, for internal controls involve, uh, violations involving payments to a third party with a close relationship to Sonangal, uh, the state-owned oil company uh, in Angola. The uh, Sonangal and in Angola, there is a local content requirement which requires that uh, outside companies have to use local contractors for, for various services, and uh, that came into play in this situation right when Sonangal was uh, renewing Halliburton contracts worth about $2 billion, $2 billion in revenue. Um, and in this case, uh, it was an internal controls prosecution where the internal controls were either ignored or circumvented relating to uh, third-party payments. There was no specific evidence of bribery uh, ever cited by the uh, SEC or admitted to by Halliburton or my client. Um, then we had two cases involving recidivists. That was Zimmer Biomet and Orthofix. Uh, they each had separate enforcement actions, but both were recidivists. Zimmer Biomet paid $30.5 million and Orthofix paid $6 million for violations occurring after their initial settlement. Zimmer Biomet, for example, continued to use a third-party distributor despite uh, promises to the government to terminate the relationship with that third party uh, for conduct uh, that was illegal in the underlying initial enforcement action. Interestingly, a senior attorney was involved in hiding the relationship and Zimmer Biomet uh, paid bribes in Mexico to import uh, unregistered uh, products. Uh, uh, in addition uh, to this, uh, Orthofix ran into a situation where its uh, decentralized controls and financial operations facilitated payment of large commissions to distributors, payment to distributors related party for services that were never provided, and large discounts to distributors to create slush funds used to pay healthcare professionals. Uh, another quick mention of Sociedad uh, Quimica y Minera, SQM, a Chilean chemical company, which paid $30.5 million to the SEC and a DOJ settlement for uh, paying $15 million in bribes to Chilean officials. 
deferred prosecution agreement was entered into, and a two-year compliance monitor, the only compliance monitor that was assigned uh, during 2017. The only U.S. connection involved in the SQM case was the fact that uh, SQM maintains ADRs, uh, uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. The focus of this case is clearly C-suite misconduct. Senior executive paid bribes from the CEO account and enlisted others to submit fake invoices and verifications. The corporate board, in fact, was provided with an internal re- audit report noting questioning surrounding the use of the CEO account and payments to high-risk vendors, but nothing was done. Obviously, uh, when you have an internal audit report, uh, you have to take that seriously and remediate and respond. The uh, Cadbury Mondelez case was a $13 million SEC settlement, a failure to conduct due diligence or monitor an agent who was used to secure payments, uh, permits for a manufacturing facility in India, $100,000 in payments to the agent, and they were not accurately recorded in the books and records. There was no evidence of bribery, but the internal controls violation uh, provides, I think, a reminder of just how easy it is uh, to find an internal controls violation uh, under the SEC's uh, prosecution authority. Um, We also saw a continuation of the Petavesa investigation and criminal prosecutions occurring down in Texas. Uh, And in these cases, three new individuals were prosecuted during the year combined with seven individuals prosecuted in 2015 and 2016, uh, bribery payments made to PDVSA in Venezuela for contracts, placement on contractor lists, and other benefits. These cases were built on the cooperation of at least one defendant that I know of, that's uh, defendant Rincon and others. Finally, one of the more interesting cases, and I've actually done a separate podcast on this, is the Joseph Baptiste case. A criminal indictment uh, arose from a long-term undercover investigation of bribery involving Haiti, um, the first uh, FCPA case to rely on Title III wiretaps, criminal wiretaps, uh, and the case was built on undercover contacts and introductions made to various uh, individuals. Payments were made by undercovers to bogus charitable organization maintained by Baptiste, and there was a lack of invoice controls for any consulting work conducted by Baptiste. Now, Baptiste, interestingly, took this money uh, from the undercovers and never paid bribes, although promising to do so, but never paid bribes to the uh, Haitian uh, government officials that he said he was going to, and he kept the money. Uh, He initially agreed to plead guilty and cooperate, but developed cold feet. Um, And now uh, he's apparently is continuing on and planning to go to trial. Um, But this is also part of a much bigger uh, investigation involving uh, corruption in Haiti and government businesses uh, involved in that, or U.S. businesses involved in that. Okay, well, that's it for today's episode. I know it's a little bit long, but there was a lot to uh, cover. Anyways, uh, thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. 
You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.